Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Hi, Michael. Welcome to this anniversary episode celebrating 100 episodes of Engendered and two years. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You and I have been having discussions around gender-based violence, sexism, misogyny, sexual exploitation and oppression for two years now. And we started this journey with you, if it's okay for me to say, not being that informed about issues of systemic sexism. Absolutely. How would you would characterize agree. your knowledge now? As, as always, I think we're, we always have room to grow. And I, I do think that there's so many things in this podcast that I found useful um, for me to, to, to learn. And, and, and there's things that honestly, I didn't know that I didn't know. So it gave me sort of a framework for me to understand a lot of these issues in more in depth. Can you give me an example of something you didn't know you didn't know? For example, starting from the very beginning, I think um, the whole concept of coercive control that Evan Stark explained, if you look in the notes, he actually has a, a much more in-depth explanation. And when I thought of domestic violence, just like he explained, I figured, well, you know, if you get beat, that's what domestic violence is. If you get beat by uh, your partner and it's just like, these are the physical uh, manifestations of, of domestic violence. Like, so I didn't know about coercive control, for example, which is basically the whole system that abusers use in order to maintain dominance over their victims, right? So that's something that I honestly, I, I didn't have a name to put on it. I may have had like maybe a loose concept of what it could possibly be, but I don't think that it was as defined. When I found out more about it, um, I was able to then uh, listen, for example, to survivor stories and really understand what coercive control looks like. It also made me understand in the media some of, some of the things that I, I had maybe sort of a vague feeling originally of why that particular story, for example, like the Aziz Ansari case, why I felt uncomfortable. And then only after understanding a lot of this did I, was I able to really put words into um, understanding what it is. What I'm hearing you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that this journey has been one towards helping you to better understand feminism and course of control is one aspect of the ways in which under patriarchy men use their male entitlement to limit the behaviors the freedoms of women and that's something that you've also begun to recognize in in culture that you're developing a toolkit and a framework for analysis that gives you the lens to better interrogate these issues without getting as confused or pot potentially as manipulated as you had been in the past by these tactics that media or other people are trying to use to frame the narrative in a more narrow way. 
Absolutely. I, I, in my learning, I feel like I could comparing it, for example, like learning, like learning math, right? There's a lot of basic principles of math that I didn't know. So I, while I was dealing with multiplication and, and, and algebra, I didn't understand the basics like adding, addition. And I think it, in comparison, I think learning about coercive control helped me understand the wider issues. So really what, what I'd like to emphasize is that our podcast has a gendered lens to analyzing power. And, and so when you mention coercive control, that shows up in multiple places over the course of the past six months to a year. We've had interviews with, for example, Leda Hong Fincher, who's the author of Leftover Women and Betraying Big Brother. She writes about and covers the Feminist Five in China and authoritarianism in China and the tactics that are being used by states, by state governments to control people in terms of surveillance and intimidation and fear basically parallel the tactics that are being used in the home. And similarly, another guest that we had, Jess Hill, who is the another journalist and author of the book, See What You Made Me Do, she talks about Albert Biederman's chart of coercion, which we recently talked about as well in an episode with Jen Senko, uh, a documentary filmmaker. And it's, it's interesting how all of these people that I've just mentioned, they are um, tasked with finding the truth. Um, at least that's what I view journalism to be, is reporting on what's important and what is that truth, even though you might argue that there is no universal truth, um, and making it clear what the elements of the story are that we need to or we need to be concerned about, and if anything, what we need to act on. And so to right. the extent that these journalists have spent their careers exploring and understanding coercion in different forms, and ultimately these tactics mirror one another in all of these spaces, I think really to me makes me wonder why don't we have more of a literacy around gender-based violence and power from a gendered lens. What is your perspective on that? I wholeheartedly agree. It seems that no matter where you're looking at the, these tactics, these course of control tactics, like financial, uh, creating a financial dependence on a person, right? Restricting somebody financially and the surveillance, it could be found, like you said, in, um, in, in, in a large scale, like in China and the, uh, in the Feminist Five, to someone like uh, Kathy Picard in her survivor story. She explains not just how these tactics appear, but sometimes how difficult they are to discern when you're in it, right? Like you don't necessarily know that you're experiencing it or you excuse the behavior. And a lot of the times I think we are part of the issue because we're not necessarily informed. And I, I think recognizing it really helps the, both the individual and society uh, together. So in terms of your own journey, if you hadn't had course of control demonstrated in these different ways by Leda Hong Fincher, by Jess Hill, my, most recently by Jen Sanko, would that be something that you could draw connections with on your own if we just started off with Evan Stark, for example, and his definition in the intimate partner violence scenario? Would you be able to connect the dots? 
To be honest, I, I don't know when you say what if. It's not something that I can easily say. Well, I, I definitely could not have. But for me, I feel looking back that it does help me understand. Understand when I look at the news, uh, understand how to be more critical of what the information that I'm taking in. It, it helps me be more critical. So I, I feel like that without the framework, I, I wouldn't have. So just if I just learned about Evan Stark, I don't think I would have been able to necessarily have seen seen it appear in other places in my life, both both in the news and in my own life. The reason I asked you that is because you used the analogy of math earlier, right? Because if you understand a formula, you're able to apply that formula in all different kinds of scenarios and get to the right answer. And so that's why right. I was trying to say, like, if we just had a formula for understanding this, why can't we just apply it to all these different settings? You know, and it, it seems to me that you're suggesting that human beings need more continuous and consistent exposure exposure and opportunities for discussion i'm guessing absolutely I, I feel like that that's important it's something that i try to do when uh i deal with my students at work i also try to do that um when i'm talking to my staff it's something that it, it's it's so ingrained now in every part of my life that i'm critical on even my hobbies that i do right it's something that helps me understand my everyday life better in Again, not just in my relationships or in the news that I read, but even in like the video games that I play. So recently we published a public service announcement on Black Lives Matter around social justice and racism. And I want to just talk about that because I am very centered on gender and my perspective as a radical feminist is understanding that patriarchy is a structure and system that is an umbrella for all other forms of oppression. And so men's power over women, which happens under patriarchy, also has variations like men's power over other men, some men's power over you know, different kinds of people, which include, so some men's power over other men. And, and so racism as a subset of male domination and male entitlement is something that you cannot address unless you also address the larger structure above it, which is male supremacy, not just white supremacy. Because ultimately, white supremacy is still about some men's power over other men. And patriarchy is about all men's power over all people, men and women. All men have the ability to use their male entitlement for harm. One of the things that I've been thinking that I've been thinking about is during the course of the past week, as we've been honoring the life of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others who have died before them, I've tried to call out that black women who have been killed because of racism, systemic racism, need to also be uplifted. And there have been different settings, for example, on LinkedIn or in Facebook, where I've interacted with different posts and the posts or the meme may have words that leave out women. When I've interacted with these posts, I've said, can we also call out black women? And I'm not saying all women, but black women. And people get upset. <laughs> and then and there was another example I wanted to share with you which is in LinkedIn, there was a 
I believe he's a millennial, probably a white male millennial founder of a, of a tech startup. He posted a link for resources around anti-racism. And, you know, this has been going around for the past week. So many, many people in my news feed have shared resources, including books and films and podcasts, etc., to listen to. And it's been shared pretty broadly by people of all colors, by Asian Americans, by white folk, Latino folks. And when I pointed out to this startup founder, um, I said, thank you so much for sharing this post, you know, and these great resources. Can we also add resources around feminism? Because just like racism, where you're either racist or you're anti-racist. You're not, that, not in between. You can't be, you're either actively trying to work to not be racist or you're racist and complicit and inactive. And similarly right. for sexism and misogyny, you're either sexist and misogynist or you're working against it and you're being pro-feminist. And so I got crickets from this post. Nobody responded. Nobody liked my comment. Nobody said anything. And to me, this just illustrates how entrenched sexism and misogyny is. Because when you think about racism, there's, you know, there was a historical, an article that has the history of racism starting from 1619, right? And what led to the current uprising, so to speak. And so it's basically 400 years in this country that we've, we've enslaved black uh, men and women. I thought, okay, well, maybe the idea to people that this problem has only existed for 400 years doesn't make it seem so overwhelming. But if you think about it, like, when, when, when was the start of sexism and misogyny? Well, since the beginning of time, right? And right. so thousands of years. So people just don't even want to deal with it. I'd like to offer my, my perspective on it. For those of you who don't know, uh, Hassan Minaj is a person that, that presents a lot of difficult issues that, for example, he, had, he, he explains about Amazon, right? That someone like Jeff Bezos is guilty of causing harm to society due to what he does. But at the same time, we as a society continue to use Amazon and to support someone that is doing some harm to society. And when you're looking at yourself, a lot of people are afraid to take responsibility in their own actions and their own, or their own inaction. And they don't like to, that it's pointed out that they are sustaining a system that is sexist. And, and it's uncomfortable to look at. And so like, I feel like maybe by reading a post like that, it may make them so uncomfortable that they would rather just not deal with it. That would, that's, that's, that's what I might. That's my point, that it makes them more uncomfortable than engaging in talking about racism. At least people are posting. They're posting Black Lives Matter. It's taboo to use the N-word. Is there any yeah. word that's sexist against women that's taboo to say? No, it's all over <laughs> the music industry. It's all over television. It's all over porn, probably. Um, there is no taboo word. Every word is acceptable. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, white male millennial was sharing resources as many white folks who are calling themselves allies to anti-racism were this past week sharing resources. 
And so there was very, I would say, a pretty broad range of white folks who were sharing resources, who were men, not just women. And yet, can you imagine these same people sharing resources to encourage people to read about feminism? Are you suggesting that the reason why some white men speak out against racism is not necessarily because they care about racism, but because they want to look good at a time where the topic of racism is so in the media because of the uh, of the climate that we're living in right now? No, I'm not saying anything about their individual motivations. I'm saying that collectively it exposes the level to which racism is unacceptable in our society and the level to which sexism is still acceptable. I, I mean, in general, while both are, are not acceptable, I think the conversation happens to be happening right now. Do you think that that person would probably feel the same way to share the same resources when we're not talking about racism? Maybe a, a year ago? Well, there's a global pandemic right now. The second pandemic besides the virus and COVID-19 is gender-based violence against women. You know, we just did a whole series on the gendered aspects of COVID, that women right. are disproportionately harmed by COVID, by the climate crisis, by being frontline essential workers, by systemic sexism as it shows up in the gender pay gap, wage gap, lack of health care, lack of child care, all of these things that keep women are from, relevant. Right. right. And women are dying more now. Yes. The femicide rates from having spoken with Nazir Afsal of England, he said in the UK, the rates have doubled. He, he said the rates have doubled in his estimate. And the UN just put out a report around the second global pandemic, which is femicide and violence against women, gendered-based violence. And I don't mean just domestic violence or intimate partner, partner violence, but female genital mutilation, child marriage, sex and human trafficking, all of these things are part of it. And all of these things are being exacerbated under COVID. And so there is another pandemic that globally officials and experts in the field have identified, but there was not the same level of concern collectively that we've given as a response. Now, do you feel that the George Floyd protests have overshadowed every other every other issue? Or do you feel that in general, people just don't have that passion to talk about, talk, to speak out against sexism and gender-based violence? Well, I think that part of the reason that, part of how we define intimate partner violence is that it's about power and control. And so why it is not rooted in mental health or mental illness or alcohol or other kinds of external factors is because people have the choice whether they want to abuse or not. And why we know that is because they only usually abuse their intimate partner. They're not doing the same thing with their boss. They're not abusing, you know, the bus driver. They're not abusing people in the rest of their lives. And so when, when you talk about racism, racism is an external manifestation of power and control towards other groups of people outside of your home. And if you already, in a way, have the ability through gender-based violence to control 
and selectively target your victims so that only your partner in your home is being victimized, you already have that ability to selectively choose not to harm other people externally. In other words, by enacting racist behavior. I understand I understand what you're saying. You're saying, to my understanding, if I may, that when a, a racist person, ha- it, it's easier for a racist person to stop their racist behaviors, not necessarily their, their, how they feel and their prejudices, but the racist behaviors, than it is for a person who is expressing their course of control um, over somebody else because it's selective? Exactly. So when you're, by definition, intimate partner violence, you're choosing to engage in a set of behaviors to dominate and oppress someone else in the home. And you're right. choosing not to do that with other people outside of the home. I mean, I mean, could, could that not be argued that's not necessarily true when, especially when people, when we t- take a look at people like, um, all right, um, I believe that it was uh, Nazir Afsal who said that a terrorist is more likely to have already expressed those behaviors of uh, domination and control to their partners before they go out and commit this terrorism uh, to, to, to a larger population of people. Like you take a look at somebody like the president who uses words like domination when we're talking about uh, like the protests. And, and it seems like it does bleed out into other parts of their life. Right. So my point is that actually just to add to what you said about Nazir, he mentioned sexism and misogyny specifically. So it was the common factor that brought terrorists together that he's he's caught and prosecuted that have brought, you know, gangs that, you know, gangs together or trying to think other groups that he's targeted and prosecuted is sexism and misogyny. And so what he said is that once you have the sexism and misogyny, it's, it's a, a way to bond, then it creates an opportunity to nurture other forms of bigotry, oppression, and violence towards other groups of people. But the common factor is the sexism and misogyny to the people in their ho- own homes and their personal lives first. And so if you address that, then you can prevent these people from hurting the public, from being a public threat. So similarly with racism, if we can address sexism and misogyny in the home and how people are treated in the home, then that could be a way to prevent them from, to address the mindset that they have, that domination and power and control over other people outside the home is also okay. If we show them that the first form of power and control in the home is not okay, that there are consequences, people are not going to want to do it outside the home. Right. That makes sense because you're addressing a behavior from which is something that you're constantly exposed to. And if you're able to address that issue, then the issues that happen outside the home would probably either not happen or be lessened, right? Just like, like terrorists who who would probably, if, if the issue of understanding um, uh, how to address that, that domination and control towards their intimate partner, they would probably use that same logic or that same uh, set of behaviors or, 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 or that change in behavior to not use that same type of method of operating w- with society. 
I agree. And then I was also thinking in terms of amongst the black community, I don't have any statistics, but this is me anecdotally kind of um, from reading the news, you know, drawing a conclusion, personal conclusion, in my opinion, is that I think most people in the black community can t- would, would not argue with you that they've experienced racism. If you were to give a poll, they would say, yes, I've experienced racism. Racism is a problem. And that, and whether or not they're actually doing anything about it, that I think we would agree with, right? Right. It may not be the case for other communities, like for example, the Asian American community. Asian Americans are white adjacent. So a lot of Asian Americans, East Asians, for example, who are light skinned, they like to think of themselves as white and stand in the shadow of whiteness in order to not be targeted or identified as an other. But amongst the black community, I think there's a greater level of racial consciousness. And the fact that there is oppression in this country and all over the world based on race and discrimination based on race. Absolutely. The reason I set that up first is if you ask women, all women in in this country, at least, is there sexism? Is there systemic sexism? I don't think the same levels will agree that, yes, there's systemic sexism because many women, because of liberal feminism, would like to think, you know, the one, the white women who have benefited from laws that have, and policies since, you know, women's rights that have only uplifted white women and not other women of color and not poor women and not other, you know, women with privilege. And so these women who are leading companies or advocating for, uh, for family leave for both genders, they're, they're probably not going to be as aware or willing to admit that there is systemic sexism because they've been beneficiaries of policies that have only uplifted just some of the women. Right. I mean, the same could be said when we're talking about um, about race, right, where, where people wouldn't understand that there is white privilege despite the fact that they're benefiting. Well, they're benefiting from it, so then they don't see that other people may potentially be disadvantaged in one way or another, right? I, I think if, you, if they're taught and they're explained what uh, their privilege looks like and how, in comparison, a person who doesn't have that privilege, what barriers they have to deal against. I think that's the, it comes down to education. Because I, I believe that a lot of people, like, for example, when it comes to racism, a lot of, a lot of white people, I would say, would say something like, well, a Black person has just as much rights as a white person. They just have to work hard. If they work hard, then they'll be able to succeed without really understanding the fact that just because you're white and where you grew up and the contacts of people that you have, you have a much uh, like a leg up as opposed to uh, a person who has other barriers. So women in the same way do have a lot more barriers than men do when it comes to uh, like uh, financial wise. And, and, and for example, like uh, I think when it comes to the gender pay gap, like a lot of people don't understand the fact that women's or, or quote unquote job for women are paid a lot less like childcare than a job for a man like that, that like where, which is typically a man or male dominated. I think that's something that people just don't understand because the women come from a, an upbringing that they have to, they have to deal with their upbringing as well, right? They grow up and there's just certain things that are taught since they're children and it shapes them. Um, well, so they have, yeah. 
But, but what about getting back to my analogy? In the case of racism, black people are primary in the narrative of racism in this country. Black people are the primary victims of racism, and they recognize that they're being oppressed. Right. But women are the primary victims of sexism, and I'm saying that they don't recognize. Not all of us recognize to the same extent that they're being oppressed. In fact, some of us actually deny that, that there's oppression, that there's sexism. Some would even go so much to, as to say that women are equal to men and give these individual examples and ignore the systemic issues. I think also you're like, for example, black people are uh, oppressed in more than one way. It's not just the fact that they have to deal with uh, police brutality, right? I think that's that they, they can identify that police brutality is just a clear indicator that they're being oppressed. I think, you know, it's pretty well established that poverty in the black community is a function of policy. And it's a function of housing policy. It's a function of financial policy, lending policy. Well, the history, right? Because of your parents. It's a function of environmental policy. It's a function right. of all of these different things that serve to keep black people economically disadvantaged. And similarly with women, women have experienced the same things. Like they couldn't use birth control and get an abortion, you know, and have bodily integrity and agency. And so all of these things are very similar. So you're saying that despite the fact that women are still continuously oppressed, they, I, so, so it's, I think it's more of a question of whether they recognize it in the first place. And I think it deals with education. Maybe they don't recognize that they're being oppressed. Maybe they have other privileges that, depending on who they are, like you said, or white women are probably more privileged in many ways than other uh, other other women. So I, I think I think also people who speak out are not necessarily the people who are oppressed, right? Uh, people who are famous are usually usually get this attention for other reasons, right? So I, I, I think that also affects affects why they like why they don't speak out necessarily. But in general, I would say that it's it's the education people who are oppressed don't necessarily recognize that they're oppressed, and maybe that's why. Well, I don't have an answer to this. Whose responsibility is it to help educate people about it? For me, I think those people who are oppressing need to be the ones who are dismantling the systems that allow them to keep oppressing and taking advantage of and exploiting other groups of people, regardless of what it's based on, race, gender, ability, gender identity, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Whatever the case is, they're responsible, right? White people are responsible for dismantling racism because they created it. Right, but one of the things that we did speak about in the past is also how people who are privileged, when, you, when, you, when they have to deal with equality, they feel like they're going to lose power. So it feels like oppression to them. So I, I think there's also that backlash that prevents them from, 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 from making any significant change. I, for example, know somebody who, is, who, who has family that is in the police system and they still say things like blue lives matter, right? Because they feel attacked. And so then they feel like, oh, all of this is happening and it's so horrible. So let's let let's let, let's continue. Let's say something like Blue Lives Matter, which is something that works counter to BLM. So I think that a lot of people have this extensive defense 
to radical change. Okay, let's take the the racial element out of it. You know, we all know that rape culture is ubiquitous in the police culture. Law enforcement is the profession with the highest rates of domestic violence, right? So whatever, yes. whether it's the chicken or egg, whether beca- it's because people who are interested in power and control are drawn to that profession so they could exert power and control in their jobs, or because the profession requires that in order to maintain credibility it shapes people and molds people to conform to that behavior. I don't know what it is. And it, it stamps out people who don't conform, right? Whatever the case, that's the culture. And so we all have women in our lives. We all know that part of rape culture is that police don't believe women, that they don't prosecute, that they don't investigate properly, that they don't test rape kits. When you say something like that and they acknowledge it, let's say, you know, through that film in, on Netflix, Unbelievable. I don't know if you saw that, um, but it was really great. It's about rape culture and it, and it was illustrated in a fictionalized, well, it was a fictionalized version of a real story based on real events. And it shows just how difficult it is for sexual assault victims to get justice from the criminal justice system and to even be heard. And so if that's the case, you know, if we were to say women's lives matter, do you think those same people would say all lives, blue lives matter? I I mean, you see blue lives matter and all lives matter being said consistently. I think if you were to say women's lives matter, there's going to be a counter. There's going to be men's lives matter. And uh, obviously there are a bunch of men's groups that are doing exactly that, right? So... I, 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 yeah, there's always going to be that, that, that counter, that backlash. Here's the other thing. I think in the media, I think the media does shape our minds to an extent because um, there is a post, for example, that I found uh, somewhere, right, on social media that said something uh, along the lines of, uh, it showed that a woman uh, falsely accused a man of, uh, of rape and the man spent uh, t- time in jail, right? So we take a look at that post and it's blown up. A lot of people are like, oh my God, what a horrible woman. And there is like this name calling that con- that's like consistently used throughout the article. Well, the person who posted the article and, and, and the comments, right? Like what a, what a horrible, like all these sexist words. And that is shown, I believe, like that's gotten more attention than posts where there's a man who raped a woman. And it, cause it's so commonplace. I don't know if it's because it's so commonplace, but either way, both of them are given the same amount, either same amount or sometimes that particular article that, um, that talks about this woman falsely accusing a man is it more attention is, it put, it is, is put to it. Right. So I think that a lot of people will look at that. And that misinformation of like the narrative that women also lie. And so there's an equal amount of chance that that woman is lying when it comes to a rape case. Right. So I, I think I think there's that, too. I think it's it's media that shapes how we make decisions or how what the public opinion is. In general. Right. And that actually brings you, you remind me of something that happened this week because there was a post in one of the groups that I'm in where someone um, it was a podcast group, actually where someone was asking about how this person happened to be a man of color from what I could discern from his photo. And he, he posed a question 
around how he would like to do an episode on Me Too. And if there was anybody in the group who, who could recommend or if they wanted to be interviewed about a story he wanted to do about Me Too to give light to the Me Too movement, um, who was falsely accused. So this person who wanted to uplift a story about women's voices not being believed and not being heard wanted to do a story about someone who was trying to discredit women's voices. Right. Yeah, that then that happens. And there was no awareness at all that that question that he was posing was problematic. Right. It was it, it's yeah, it's counter to what your ultimate goal is. It's like doing a, a, a story on racism and and Jim Crow and saying, let me interview KKK members. Like, right. You're not going to do that. You're going to interview people who are the victims of racism. Absolutely. Or glorifying the deaths of police officers at the hands of a black or something like that. Right. right. It's, it's, it would be that would be the equivalent. Like, yes, of course, that happens. But that, you, again, it doesn't happen in the same uh, amount. And obviously, this is a systemic issue and it count, kind of counters to what the, the, the change that you're trying to make or the change that society should be all working towards. Right. I've been very frustrated this this past week because of me trying to uplift, you know, names like Brianna Taylor and Sandra Bland and and recognizing that when you have intersecting forms of oppression that you're going to be even more disenfranchised and 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 victimized and vulnerable as, you know, these two women and many other black women are. And just like there's missing and killed indigenous women there's also a movement to try to highlight missing and killed black women in this country because so many black women are actually, the theory is, being um, trafficked through the system for sex trafficking or human trafficking or whatever. And, I see. And those names, you know, happen every day. They're being falling through the cracks and nobody's doing anything to, about it. There's no voice that's uplifting uplifting them and, and making people uh, drive attention to it. I, yeah, and that's very important. That's why we have these discussions on these, on these topics. I, um, I, I do believe that the progress is made, but it's made slowly, and it's not something that's going to change from one, one day to another. Before we sign off, I want to thank you for your commitment to having these conversations, these difficult conversations with me to your commitment to learning, to being a part of this project. Hopefully we can, we can expand the community of people who are in conversation with us. And I also want to say to our listeners, if there's anything that I've said that was offensive, that was harmful, that was uninformed, please reach out and let me know. And we would be happy to rectify that in a future segment. But um, I come from a place of openness. I come from a place of willingness to hear and listen and hopefully use that knowledge and experience that I've had as a survivor to bring about healing and systemic transformation. Yeah, one of the things that I do appreciate about this podcast is how well-researched it is. And there's so many links that uh, allow the, the listener to find out more about uh, any topic that we've talked about. We've had over 100 episodes and every episode I found out something new 
and with the amount of episodes that we have, I've I've had some of my favorites. Uh, some of them are, are, are they are in line with my interests. Um, so I, I value the variety of the variety of topics and the amount of information that you have on each one of these topics and how it can shape a person to appreciate gender-based violence um, better. And how and how relevant it is to all of us. Yeah, it's extremely relevant in every single part of our lives. It just, it's, it permeates there and, it, and, and it's better for us to um, recognize these uh, instances of injustices and address them so we can move to a better future. Well, thank you so much, Michael. And until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay woke. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.